Well, friends, would you turn with me, please, to the words that we read in uh, Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. And as I said a little earlier, we're going to be considering uh, verse 1 of chapter 11 all the way down to verse uh, 26 of uh, chapter uh, 12. Nehemiah chapter 11 and reading again verses 1 and 2. Where we read now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. A few years ago, I purchased a a small book called uh, Witnesses in the Far North. It's a book all about Christians who lived in Caithness and Sutherland in the 19th and early 20th centuries, men and women who were very passionate about the Lord and very passionate about his cause. Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12 may not appear to be the most exciting or enthralling uh, portions of Scripture, but they provide us with a record of men and women who, like these witnesses in the far north, were also passionate about the Lord and passionate about his cause. And so this evening, as we continue our studies in Nehemiah, we're going to look at these two chapters under three headings. We're looking at the relocation, then the resettlement, and finally the registration. The relocation, the resettlement, and the registration. First, we have the relocation, and you see that in verses 1 to 24 of chapter 11. And if you have a Bible, friends, it would be most helpful if you kept it open. Otherwise, you may find yourself getting a little lost. So first, we have the relocation, chapter 11, verses 1 to 24. And here, Nehemiah focuses on the relocation to the city. Nehemiah opens by drawing our attention to what needed to be done in verses 1 and 2. We can start by noting the problem. Back in chapter 1, Nehemiah received a report about the condition of the city of Jerusalem. Its walls were destroyed by fire and its gates were broken down. By chapter 6, Nehemiah has led the people in repairing and rebuilding these walls. But chapter 7 tells us, chapter 7 verse 4, that while the city was wide and large, the people within it were few. It was sparsely populated. And what we need to understand is that this was a major problem since Jerusalem was viewed, you see it in verse 1 here, as being the holy city. This was the city where the Lord had chosen to concentrate his presence. This was the city where the priests would offer their sacrifices. This was the city that was meant to function as a channel of blessing, a light to the nations, a witness to the world that the Lord is God. But in Nehemiah chapter 11, this great city that had so much promise, so much potential, is essentially a ghost town. And having noted the problem, we can note the solution. It's decided that the city must be repopulated by a tenth of the population. And so lots are cast to decide who should live in the city. Proverbs 16 tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision comes from the Lord. The casting of lots was regarded as the best way to discern and determine the will of God. Once the people are chosen by lot, we read that they willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. They didn't go up grudgingly. 
They weren't forced against their will. They went up to Jerusalem willingly. They went up voluntarily. And as they willingly offered to live in Jerusalem, the rest of the people blessed them. They acknowledge what these men and women are doing. They express their appreciation for what these men and women are doing. And they appeal to the Lord to bless these men and women for what they are doing. Nehemiah goes on to draw our attention to who relocated to Jerusalem in verses 3 to 24. We have the ordinary families, verses 3 down to 9. Most of them come from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The people who come from the tribe of Judah are mentioned in verses 4 down to 6. The people who came from the tribe of Benjamin are mentioned in verses 7 to 9. We then have the priests, verses 10 down to 14. These men, we read, were responsible for doing the work of the house, the work of the temple. A number of them are described as being mighty men of valor. These men were responsible for leading the people in worship, but they were not weak uh, men. They were not uh, soppy men. They were men of valor. They were men who were prepared to fiercely fight for the welfare of the temple, the welfare of Jerusalem. And finally, we've got the Levites, verses 15 down to 24. These men were responsible for assisting the priests in their work. Some of them were responsible for the outside work of the house of God, the exterior of the building, the grounds of the building. Others were responsible for leading the praise. Others were responsible for serving as gatekeepers, ensuring that no unauthorized person would ever enter the temple. And we're told at the very end that the Persian king Artaxerxes took a personal interest in the work of the Levites. He gave a command to ensure that there was a food provision for them, for their singers, that none of them went hungry. And he received regular reports about what was happening from a man called Pethahiah, the son of Meshezebel. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we are being reminded that there is always a cost when it comes to the Lord's work. There is always a cost when it comes to the Lord's cause. That is what we see in Nehemiah chapter 11. The holy city Jerusalem needed to be repopulated if it was to function as a channel of blessing, a light to the world, a witness to the nations that the Lord is God. And a tenth of the population willingly offered to go up and live in Jerusalem. And what we need to appreciate, friends, and maybe we overlook this, what we need to appreciate is that this was a costly act. That was a sacrificial act. You see, these people are leaving their workplaces. These people are leaving their their homes. These people are leaving their friends. They are leaving their families. They are leaving their neighborhoods. They are leaving the ties that bind. And they are doing this for the Lord's cause. They are doing this for the Lord's honor. They are doing this for the Lord's glory. And that is an important lesson for ourselves. As I've kept saying over these months, the aim of this series is to encourage us as we attempt to regroup, as we attempt to rebuild, as we attempt to reach out to our community with the gospel after two years of lockdown and restrictions. And friends, that will come at a cost. It's going to come at a cost. It will involve us making sacrifices. 
It will involve us getting out of our comfy chairs and comfort zones. It will involve us getting our sleeves rolled up. Not just saying, well, we'll leave it to the few, but saying we will participate. But as we think about this, we should have the words of the great 19th century missionary C.T. Studd ringing in our ears. Do you remember what he said? If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I make for him can be too great. I'll say that again. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I make for him can be too great. There is always a cost. When it comes to the Lord's work, there is always a cost when it comes to the Lord's cause. And this evening, I want to encourage each of us not to run from it, but to run to it. Not to evade it, but to embrace it. As C.T. Studd said on another occasion, and I've, I've got it on my wardrobe in the bedroom, where he writes these words, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Can I ask you, friends, is that your motto? Is that what you're living for? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The relocation. Then second, we have the resettlement. You see that in chapter 11, verses 25 to 36, where Nehemiah now focuses on the resettlement in the country. Nehemiah opens this section by focusing on the towns and villages that were settled in by the people of Judah, verses 25 to 30. We've just highlighted the relocation to Jerusalem. It was essential that this ghost town be repopulated, and so 10% of the population go and live in Jerusalem. They serve the Lord in that place, but there was a great need for crops. There was a great need for other produce if the country and the economy were to survive and not only thrive. They couldn't all just sit in Jerusalem working in the temple. And so the remaining 90% of the population live in smaller towns. And you see what Nehemiah writes with their fields. And Nehemiah starts by focusing on where this tribe of Judah settled. The towns and villages are identified as Kiriath Arba, Dibon, Jacobziel, Jeshua, Molada, Pethpelet, Hazar Shual, Beersheba, Ziklag, Mekona, Enrimon, Jarmuth, Zanoa, Adalam, Lakish, and Azekah. That was an area that went all the way from Beersheba in the far south to the outskirts of the valley of Hinnom, uh, just there in the outskirts of Jerusalem. Nehemiah then focuses on the towns and villages that were settled in by the tribe of Benjamin in verses 31 to 36. He identifies the towns and villages in verses 31 to 35. We have Geba, Michmash, Aijah, Bethel, Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gitaim, Hadid, Zebuim, Nebalat, Lod and Ono. Now these towns and villages are all located north of Jerusalem. So you've got the tribes of Judah settling in the south of Jerusalem. And you've got the tribes of Benjamin settling in the north of Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah provides us with a very interesting detail in verse 36. Where he writes that certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. The Levites, as we saw back in Nehemiah chapter 8, were responsible for teaching the people the word of God. 
We've already noted that a number of them relocated to Jerusalem. That was understandable. Jerusalem was the capital. Jerusalem was the worship centre. But now we're being told that a number of Levites were assigned to the towns and villages that the people of Judah and Benjamin had moved into in the country. Those living in the urban areas needed to hear the word of God. But those living in the rural hamlets also needed to hear the word of God. There is a need. We heard it from Gordon a few weeks ago at the prayer meeting. There is a need for church plants in the cities. But there is also a need, isn't there, for church plants and revitalization in rural country areas. And Nehemiah was ahead of his time. He believed that as he put Levites to teach the word of God to the people in these rural areas. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we are being reminded that the Lord is committed to keeping his word. The Lord is committed to keeping his promises. That's what we see in Nehemiah chapter 11. Back in Genesis 12 and 15, the Lord had promised to give Abram and his descendants this very land. And the Lord had promised that it would be from this land that he would bless the nations. And he had promised that it would be from this land that the Messiah, the promised seed, the bringer of blessing would come. But in 586 BC, Babylon invades the land of Judah basically carries off all the inhabitants into exile in Babylon and people are left thinking to themselves what about what God had said to Abraham? What about God's promises? But the Lord had promised that he would bring his people back to their own land. And now in Nehemiah chapter 11 we find the people of Judah and the people of Benjamin resettled in the towns and villages of Judea along with Levites who will teach them the word of God. Dale Ralph Davis writes that there is a hint of the fidelity, a hint of the faithfulness, a hint of the commitment of the Lord in the geography of these verses. That even as you see these obscure people living in these obscure areas, it is shouting the fact that God is faithful. God's not broken his word. God's not abandoned his promises. And friends, that is so important for us to hear this evening. The Lord is committed to keeping his word. He is committed to keeping his promises. We can think of the promises that he gives in the Gospel of John. He promises that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. He promises that he is the good shepherd. And that he will lay down his life for his flock and that none of his flock will be plucked from his hand. We can think of the promise that he gives that he has gone to prepare a place for his people. And if he has gone to prepare a place for his people, he will come back and take them to be with him. Or we can think of the promises that he gives in the letter to the Romans. He promises that there is no condemnation for anyone who is united to him. Isn't that wonderful? No condemnation. For anyone who is united to Jesus, he goes on to promise that he is coming to restore and renew and rescue this groaning creation. This creation that is groaning under COVID. This creation that is groaning under the cost of living. This creation that is groaning under so much, he is going to renew it. He is going to restore it. And he promises that absolutely nothing in the whole of creation will separate his people 
from his love. Wonderful promises. Or we can think about the promises that he gives in the book of Revelation. He promises that he will sit down and eat with every person who opens the door to him. He promises that he will wipe away every single tear. He promises that he is going to make all things new. And he promises that he is coming again and he is coming again soon. Wonderful promises. He gives promise after promise to lift downcast eyes. Promise after promise to lift despondent hearts. Promise after promise to lift drooping hands. And friends, he doesn't simply make the promises. He keeps the promises. Whenever I think of the Lord's promises, I'm reminded of a story about B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield was the great theologian at Princeton Seminary. And he was on honeymoon with his wife, Annie. And when they were walking in the hills, they were involved in a terrible thunderstorm. So that Annie was shocked, so shocked, so shaken that she became an invalid, more or less, for life. And Warfield never left her for more than two hours at a time. His whole life revolved around Princeton. He couldn't, he wouldn't be away from his wife for 39 years. And one of his students noted that when he saw the Warfields out walking together, the gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her for 39 years. Why? Why? Because he was filled with butterlap fly feelings in his stomach? No, because he had promised to love her in sickness and in health. And the Lord is far more faithful. He is far more tenacious. He is far more committed to keeping his promises than any man, even B.B. Warfield. And so let me ask you this evening, friends, are you believing the promises? Are you resting on the promises? Are you trusting in the promises? Are you taking heart from the promises? And not only the one who makes the promises, but also the one who keeps the promises. He gives you these promises, friends, that you wouldn't be looking down, but that you would be looking up. So are you believing the promises? And the one who makes them and keeps them. Third and finally, we have the registration And you see that in chapter 12, verses 1 to 24. And here Nehemiah focuses on the registration of the clergy. Nehemiah provides us with a register of the religious leaders who returned from exile in the time of Zerubbabel and Jeshua in verses 1 to 9. Nehemiah begins by telling us about the return from exile in verse 1. Uh, We have already noted that the Babylonians carried these Jews off into exile in 586 BC. But in 537 BC, 90 years before the time of Nehemiah, a number of Jews returned. And they returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel the governor and Jeshua the priest. And Nehemiah continues by listing the priestly families who returned with Zerubbabel and Jeshua in verses 2 to 7. We have Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluch, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rakum, Merimoth, Edo, Ginnathai, Abijah, Mijamin, Maadiah, 
Bilga, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, and Jediah. Now in First Chronicles 24, we read that during the days of King David, there were 24 priestly families who worked around the temple. Now in Nehemiah chapter 12, you've got 22 priestly families returning to work on the temple. Not everyone returned. As I was thinking about that, I did think to myself, I wonder if everyone will return from COVID. Or will they decide the church is no longer for them? Not everyone returned from exile. Nehemiah carries on, though, by listing the Levitical families who returned with Zerubbabel and Jeshua, verses 8 and 9. We have Jeshua, Benuai, Kadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, Mataniah, Bakbukiah, and Uni. Once again, there is this emphasis that leading the people and singing the Lord's praises was one of the key duties of the Levites. And then in verses 10 down to 24, Nehemiah provides us with a register of the religious leadership following that return from exile. And he begins by giving us a genealogical record of the high priests, verses 10 and 11. There's Jeshua, the high priest at the time of Zerubbabel. There's then Joachim, the high priest when Ezra arrived in Jerusalem. There's Eliashib, the high priest when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem. And then there's Joiada, Jonathan and Jedua, high priests at a later date. And Nehemiah then gives a record of the priests who were active during the high priest of Joachim. Look at verses 12 to 21. We have Mariah of Sariah. Hananiah of Jeremiah, Meshulam of Ezra, Jehoanan of Amariah, Jonathan of Malachi, Joseph of Shebaniah, Adna of Harim, Helkai of Merioth, Zechariah of Edo, Meshulam of Genethon, Zikri of Abijah, Piltai of Moadiah, Shamua of Bilgag, Jehoanan of Shemaiah, Matanai of Joyarib, Uzi of Jediah, Kalai of Salai, Eber of Amok, Hashabiah of Hilkiah, and Nethanel of Jediah. Now that list, friends, is fascinating. And you think to yourself, get a grip. But it is fascinating, and it's fascinating for for three reasons. You see, the majority of the priestly families mentioned here are also mentioned in verses 1 to 7. These priestly families who returned in the days of Zerubbabel and Jeshua. There are also new priestly families being mentioned. Isn't that great? Seeing new people getting involved in the Lord's work. And that is something we give thanks for as a result of coming out of COVID. That we have seen new people coming into the life of our congregation. And yet again, there are also some priestly families who are missing. Finally, Nehemiah gives a record of the Levites who were active in the days of Joachim, Ezra and himself. Look at verses 22 to 24. Nehemiah highlights that their names are written in the book of the Chronicles, that is a temple archive that was kept within the temple of all these priestly names and Levitical names. Nehemiah then singles out a few for very special mention. He mentions their chiefs, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua. He mentions the brothers of the chiefs who were involved in leading the praise and giving thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God. Nehemiah never tires of praising the people who are leading in the Lord's praise. Are we praising those who are leading in the Lord's praise? Not saying how great Spangy is, but are we just saying thanks Spangy, thanks Eleanor, thanks David, thanks Malcolm, thanks 
Annabelle, thanks to all the presenters on a Tuesday night. Are we just saying thank you for the job you're doing in leading us in the praise of God? Annie mentions the gatekeepers. Mataniah, Bakbukia, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talmon and Akub. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we are being reminded about the importance of the continuation of the Lord's worship by successive generations. The importance of the continuation of the Lord's worship by successive generations. That is what we see in Nehemiah chapter 12. Verses 1 to 7, we have the priestly families who are active and involved in the worship of the Lord during the days of Jeshua the priest. Then look at verses 12 to 21. We have the priestly families who are active and involved in the worship of the Lord during the days of Joachim the priest. Do you see Nehemiah's excitement? So excited that after 90 odd years, there are still generations of priests praising the Lord in Judea. And that is so important, friends, for us to reflect on this evening. Last year, I visited an old church building that I used to preach in as a student. The electric had been switched off. The windows were broken. There were bird droppings and evidence that sheep had been kept in it over the winter. But what was saddest of all was picking up old Bibles and sand books of old friends who have passed from time into eternity. Men and women who I had fellowship with, who were in my home and whose homes I was in. That past generation praised the Lord. They blessed the Lord in that place Sunday by Sunday, rain, hail or shine. Now, as far as I'm aware today, there is no one within a 10 to 15 mile radius of that village worshipping the Lord now. They have no interest. No interest. And the reason I draw your attention to this, friends, is to raise the question. Where will the high free church be? Where will the churches in Lewis be? In five years' time, in ten years' time, in twenty-five years' time, in fifty years' time. Perhaps some will have closed. Some will have closed. And others might be bursting at the seams. And this, friends, is why I keep emphasising the importance of regrouping and rebuilding and reaching out to young and old with the gospel in these days. We don't want to see a gospel witness flicker out in Stornoway. We don't want to see a gospel witness flicker out in Lewis. And friends, it could happen. I want you to be honest this evening. I want to be honest with you and tell you that it could happen. If it happened in one's thriving churches in the North Coast, it could happen here and in a far shorter space of time. We've seen the impact that COVID has had on churches. We don't want to see a gospel witness flicker out. We want to see future generations in Stornoway and in Lewis 
participating in the worship of the Lord, participating in the glorification of the Lord, participating in the magnification of the Lord. We want to see future generations rejoicing in the Lord and rejoicing in his grace. We want to see future generations of faithful witnesses to the all-surpassing worth, the all-sufficient grace of Jesus. Don't we? Don't we? Don't we? I hope we do. So that in 30 years' time, when Colin Murdo was having his retirement due, people will say, Look how the Lord blessed High Free and Kenneth Street. Look what happened because these people were faithful witnesses under the blessing of God.